Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Welcome to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios on Arana Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all, all nations through Vice Channel 911 on FM Bunto Alice Springs, also via the Calm app and online at caama.com.au. Today is Thursday the 18th of July 2019. My name is Damien Williams. On today's program, in our first story, we will hear from Professor Hugh Taylor about his visit to Alice Springs ahead of the AFL game against the Melbourne Demons and the West Coast Eagles and about the work the Melbourne Demons um, have been doing when it comes to helping eradicate trachoma. We will also hear about the 24th NT cost, cost of living report that was released this morning. And finally, we will hear about the Northern Territory Gunnar Labor government's new initiative aimed at helping young people at risk. We will also hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And we'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8Kin FM. Professor Hugh Taylor is the Deputy Chair of Vision 2020 Australia. He also uh, holds the Harold Mitchell Chair of Indigenous Eye Health and is the lead of the Indigenous Eye Health Unit in at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Hugh, Dr. Taylor has also been a part of the Fred Hollows Foundation for over 30 years, working alongside Dr. Fred Hollows to eradicate treatable causes of blindness in communities across the country and other parts across the globe. Professor Hugh Taylor dropped into the studio this morning and I asked him about his visit to Alice Springs. The reason we're here on this trip is really to build around the footy game that Melbourne and West Coast are playing on Sunday. And so we've got players and Melbourne Footy Club members coming up today uh, and then tomorrow we'll go out to Natari and on uh, Saturday go out to Santa Teresa where the club puts on these footy clinics so they teach the kids how to kick and mark but from our point of view really importantly the importance of clean faces and strong uh, eyes and and good healthy living Uh, so it's a great way to take the the, uh, iconic role of these uh, footy players particularly the indigenous players uh, and uh, work with the kids in the community. Yeah, well, the uh, Melbourne Football Club has uh, long been associated with uh, the Trachoma Eye Health programs as well. How important, like you said, you know, it is it is really important to get those Indigenous players to be able to um, uh, promote healthy eyes, strong eyes, yeah. clean faces, and, you know, how much of an improvement have you seen since... Well, we've actually program? seen a lot of improvement, which has been terrific. We, we started off, this is our 10th 
this year, we started off uh, in 2010 at Ewan Demu with uh, uh, Liam Jarrah, uh, it was it's his uh, home community, and uh, we had all the senior leadership of the club, and that was so successful, and with Aaron Davey as well. So they kept going. Now we've got people like Neville Jetter and, and uh, Jay Har- uh, Kennedy Harris and people like that, really taking great leadership. And uh, so the clubs love it. And, and last year when we had the women up here, we had 35 players and staff out of five communities on the one day. It was just a blowout sort of a, event. And so that's really good from that point of view. But from as far as trachoma is going, we're making some really good progress. We've, we're, uh, when we started, if you go back uh, 10 years, the rates were 21% of the kids in the communities had trachoma and something like uh, uh, 8 or 10% of the adults had the scarring and the interned eyelashes. So it was a real problem. Now the rates dropped down to less than 4% of the kids with uh, having trachoma and uh, very few of the adults have, uh, have got the interned lashes because we can getting those surgically treated. So we're making really good progress. We are concerned that there are still a few of the smaller communities where... 20% of more of the kids have got it, but sometimes that might be two out of nine kids in, a, in some of the little communities. But we've got to work really hard to make sure that all the kids' faces stay clean. Clean faces, strong eyes is the real message. And because it is a really... Um, uh, it, is, it is a thing that can be treated simply. Well, we can eliminate trachoma by just keeping all the kids' faces clean. With trachoma, it's a funny infection, and the kids are probably reinfecting each other, you know, every day or every week, or, you know, when all the kids running around with dirty faces and, you know, playing with each other and touching each other, or a couple of kids sleeping on the same mattress. They're just passing infection back and forth, back and forth. And kids need something like 100 or 150 episodes of infection to end up with enough damage to, to get blind. And all the infection just comes from the eye secretions and because the tears right through the nose, it's sort of, yeah. um, uh, you know, mucky noses and, and yucky eyes, or snotty noses and yucky eyes that spreads the infection from one kid to the other. So to keep the kids' faces clean, the disease disappears. It disappeared from mainstream Australia sort of 100 years ago as living conditions improved. Yeah, and like, um, you know, w- w- when you said that uh, the... the um the infections and a number of them are going down. Do you expect, um, well, how soon do you expect if we keep on the same path yeah. for it to be a, a We're med- really hoping by the end of next year, that's our target. It's a big mountain to climb and we've got 17 months and a couple of days to go <laughs> <laughs> and counting. Um, but uh, I think, you know, with the great work that... Uh, uh, Paula Wines and the CDC team here, uh, the, the public health nurses are doing uh, in treatment with all the work that's going on in the communities about promoting good hygiene, the work that's going on in the schools uh, to make sure that the, the wash basins and troughs and things are, are good and the kids' faces are clean and kids are taught about it, and then particularly the work with housing. And see, we find many times that the, the, the bathrooms or the washing facilities are not working and people have been waiting a long time to get those fixed. And we reckon anybody who's got, you know, a leaky tap or a blocked drain should have that fixed up in 48 hours. And so we really try to work with housing and the, and the regional 
uh, housing groups to try to get those house maintenance officers and that prompt repair and maintenance of the washing facilities. Because even if your face is dirty and the bathroom's not working and you don't, don't have water, you can't wash it. Mm. So it's actually those multiple things. And to try to make it go long-lasting, we're, we're building with the other health promotion people about the deadly ears and the uh, rheumatic heart and, and dental people and stuff with our six-step hygiene message and uh, also trying to get the ongoing repair and maintenance sorted out with the housing and schools. And it's sort of like a holistic sort a of... A holistic approach, but, but really focusing on those childhood infections. So the six-step message is blow your nose until it's empty, not just blow your nose as a fake, but actually blow your nose until it's empty, wash your hands with soap, uh, wash your face, uh, you know, whenever it's dirty, or, or wash when it's got uh, snotty noses and yucky eyes. Uh, either air dry or, or, or use paper towels. Brush your teeth morning and night, and have a good wash with soap. Yeah. So it's really keeping things clean because it deals with otitis media, rheumatic heart, the whole range of things, as well as trachoma. So building in that healthy living will help all those childhood infections. And and having those, uh, like you said, um, uh, basic cleaning facilities, running water and that kind of thing, that will really help. With That's right. And so we've been uh, giving out into communities these uh, safe bathroom checklists. So there's a picture of a bathroom so people can tick whether the shower's working or the plugs, you know, the, the drain's blocked or something. And then depending on what community, we'll have who to contact, whether it's the 1800 number or, or whatever, so that... We're encouraging people to report those things so, because when you sit and talk to, to the government, they say, oh, no, everything's under control. And you talk to the contractors, they say, oh, no, we fix everything we hear about. You talk to the people on the ground, they say, well, nothing ever gets done. And so it's trying to work at different levels on that scheme to actually make sure people have safe and functional washing facilities. The other thing that, that's, that's really important, and, and we were talking about it earlier this morning with the release of this work on stores and nutrition and stuff, is the real importance of a good diet and how expensive food is out in the community, but how important it is that people keep a good diet. I mean, all the problems we're seeing with diabetes is really related to people eating, you know, the f junk food or the, the uh, uh, fast food and, and, and prepared food and stuff like that. People really need to be eating a good, healthy diet, and that's, that's really important. Uh, and diabetes is, is a very important cause of blindness. Everybody with diabetes is likely to develop eye disease, but we can prevent almost all, 98% of that blindness from diabetes by timely eye examinations and treatment. So, but to prevent diabetes itself, people need to have that good, healthy diet and, of course, some exercise as well. Some of the other causes uh, or other causes of blindness that can be um, treated, uh, what, are, what are some of those? Well, the, the major cause of blindness we're looking at, we've talked about diabetes, and that's really important, and trachoma, where we're, we're, we're close to eliminating mm. that, we think. We, we, if we can keep all the kids' faces clean, it's a done deal. The other two things are, are cataract 
and everybody will develop cataract if they live long enough. Uh, cigarette smoking increases a bit, diabetes increases a bit, lots of UV increases a bit, but sooner or later most people will get it. But the thing is, it can be fixed, and it can be fixed overnight. You do cataract surgery, you, can, you get good vision the next day. So people need to get their eyes checked. And the other cause is just the need of a pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put on a pair of glasses, you can see right away. So those vision, those cause of vision loss, you can really fix up right away if people are getting the regular eye exams. And one of the things that I think is really important is in the, in the healthy adult checks, that 715 checks, that uh, vision and checking vision is one of the things to get checked there. So to encourage everybody to get this adult health check every year is really important. And the data came out last week, about 60% of the older people are getting that, but only about 30 or 40% of the younger people. And so I think that's a really important thing to be emphasising. Get that 715 check. If there's a problem with the vision, then the... the uh, the medical service will refer you to the optometrist or ophthalmologist. And Alice, you got great service with Tim Henderson and, and the team at, at the hospital and, and at Congress and stuff. But it's getting those eye exams checked. And, and do you think that there's an adequate number of eye checks being done in communities as no, well? No, we, we look across the whole country and, and we estimate there are about 85,000 eye exams that should be done on Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people each year. And at the moment, only about 50,000 are being done. We've gone a long way from where we were a few years ago. There's a big increase, but we've still got to get those extra mm. <laughs> 35,000 done. But a lot of that is is the people being detected in primary care and then being referred on. I mean, of course, you could walk in to an optometry clinic or something like that, but mostly it's it's really building the services in, in uh, the linkages between primary care, which is so important. You know, the, the ad shows, the community-controlled health services... AMS, uh, and then getting into that referral process. And, and do you think it could be a bit of uh, um, eye health education as well, or pe- telling people, you know, if you do feel something wrong or, yeah. you know? If, you, if you've noticed a change in vision yeah. or if your eye feels sore or, 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 or watery or something, you should be checked right away. But if you have diabetes, you need to have an eye exam every year. You should also just have that couple of questions, quick eye check as part of the adult health check. But certainly if you notice something wrong with your eye, get into the clinic right away. On that note, uh, Dr Hugh Taylor, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. No, no, it's a real pleasure to be back at Alice again, and thank you for your time. That was Professor Hugh Taylor talking about his visit to Alice Springs. And we'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. I can see- Yes, welcome back to Strong Voices. And now it is time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And joining me in the studio, I have Karma's Kyle Darling. Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Damien, and good morning to all our listeners across the country today. Yeah, it's it, well, it's a nice day today. <laughs> it is nice. You know, it's been a little bit cold in the mornings and, and nights, but... During the day, it's it's amazing right now. Yeah, it is lovely. Uh, well, Kyle, first off, we wanted to uh, talk a bit about the the Royal Commi- Victoria's Royal Commission into Mental Health and uh, what is uh, the news with that? Yeah, so this is a story from SBS with uh, the Royal Commission there in Victoria being told Indigenous mental health services, uh, you know, aren't working for some of the mob. So Victoria's Royal Commission into Mental Health has heard that Indigenous people are disproportionately exposed to risk factors that. 
Im- negatively impact their uh, psychological well-being. This includes the trauma associated with things such as uh, colonisation, the stolen generations, discrimination, and uh, over overrepresentation in the justice system. So uh, Auntie Nellie Flagg, a uh, Wemmer, Wemmer elder, gave evidence on Tuesday about the mental anguish she has experienced growing up in the northwest of Victoria, northwest Victorian town of uh, Swan Hill in the 1960s. And she said uh, her childhood was happy until she began attending school and was, uh, you know, sort of ostracised by her classmates. And it wasn't because of, you know, her being an individual, but because of her skin colour. So things like that. The Commission has also heard that uh, around Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are three times more likely to experience uh, high or very high mental distress that they are dying by suicide at uh, twice the rate of the general population. As we know, the federal government did commit specific funding towards addressing things such as, you know, suicide amongst the mob. This year alone is, is you know, seen the tragic loss of a lot of uh, First Nations peoples. You know, we're only halfway through this year, so still clearly a very big problem and any sort of, you know, additional light I think we can shine in that area to have those conversations to bring it up and start to make those changes I think is is definitely very important. Yeah, because it's, um, you know, even little subtle things do take their toll and, um, you know, fighting myself, finding things like that as well, subtle um, bits of racism or just uh, a bit of discrimination or whatever, it's, it does really um, play effect and, you know, it's just trying to get um, that message out to the wider community. Yeah, and for, for some people, they may not even think it's uh, something super serious. It could be like a little joke or something like that and... It can have its impact. You know, the, the people really do need to think about, you know, what they say when they're talking to people and things like that because that stuff does impact people. And things like mental health is definitely something that uh, needs to really be taken into consideration because it does impact people just as much as in sometimes more cases even more than physical health so yeah definitely very important and one of those mental health is uh you know one of those um things that uh, really does get spoken about and um you know can really go under the radar in terms of um trying to deal with um your health as a whole um mental health is sometimes uh, not that well looked at or spoken about yeah um, and we are joined by Lorena as well. Uh, Lorena, good morning. Hey, good morning, Damo, and good morning to all our listeners. And uh, what uh, story do you have for us this morning? Um, yeah, so just going through and looking at some stories, um, NAIDOC has just passed, um, you know, and it was celebrated all over the country. Uh, and in particular, the Regional Force Valence Group, um, which is the Army's newest formation, um, which is paying... Uh, Tributes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have, um, yeah, had their time and, you know, throughout the Defence Force, whether it's the Navy or the Air Force or uh, the Army. And, yeah, they're paying, they're putting forth um, tributes or the, for the contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have, um, yeah, defended the, the nation and also just... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have participated in almost all battles um, that have been fought, you know, the world wars. And, uh, yeah, they're really just putting forth their um, thank you to the to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have been in the Defence Force. Um, 
And yeah, and especially with a lot have, that have been that were turned away as well, exactly. but still and went and fought. The hardships that they had to fight for when they came back, they went away to fight for the country. But when they came back to Australia, that you know the, their rights were no, no more. Like they didn't have yeah. any rights. And but yeah, throughout those years and up until now, um, just the the high um, entries of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Th- who who do go into the um, defence force? Yeah, so, exactly. So yeah, yeah they pay tribute to them. So, and Kyle, uh, understand you got uh, one other quick story that we could talk a bit about uh, the earthquake. Um, what do you call it? Uh, readiness or announcement? Yeah, that's right. This is a story from the ABC. Uh, so, earthquake panic in Western Australia's north has, has sparked calls for uh, better emergency information for residents. So, a mass panic was caused by Australia's. Uh, equal largest earthquake has left residents in remote Western Australia too afraid to actually return home days after the shockwaves first hit. So the magnitude 6.6 earthquake caused people at, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Biduraganga <laughs> Aboriginal community, sorry about that, um, to actually, you know, run from when that was actually felt. So that was, even though that was 200 kilometres offshore on Sunday, they still felt that that far in and some of the community leaders have actually blamed our poor telecommunication infrastructure for a lack of information. Uh, an Indigenous interpreting service said the uh, fallout highlighted a gap in disaster response planning as authorities continue to work with residents uh, to, you know, sort of calm them down and things like that. Uh, so obviously for mob going through that whole process to be, especially a community that's close to the water as well, uh, you know, fears with things like tsunamis. tsunamis yeah, um, That's something that's very serious, especially if, you know, that's your livelihood working on the water. You need to be given as much, uh, you know, warning as you possibly can that something like that is going to happen and that you're able to get to, you know, safety as soon as possible. So... You know, it's something that's obviously happens in a lot of other communities uh, around the country, but definitely for remote communities, they deserve to have the exact same infrastructure and support mm. in that sort of process that can go through and having those things like language support as well so that people, you know, everyone's able to understand it very clearly and able, able to know yeah. exactly what they need to do when those situations happen. Well, it is one of those natural disasters that um, you wouldn't think that comes with Australia being mm. in the middle of a tectonic plate, but um, it is one of those things that um, needs to be looked at and be prepared for. Mm, like you said, you know, even in case of tsunamis and stuff like that as well. Definitely better to be safe than sorry and to have all that preparation there so that, you know, we can prevent, you know, any loss of life in those situations. Yeah. On that note, uh, thank you very much to Kyle and Lorena for joining me for the Torres Strait Islander and uh, Aboriginal news from around the country. Thanks, Damo. Thank you. Hey, Mob. This is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, welcome back to Strong Voices. The Northern Territory Council of Social Services, NTCOS, 24th Cost of Living Report released today has shown he shown the spotlight on soaring prices for healthy foods in remote community stores and calling on the government to take action. The NT government's latest market 
basket survey shows that the average price for a basket of healthy food in 2017 in the Northern Territory in remote communities was $319 more than in in any NT major supermarket. And welcome back to the program. Well, the Northern Territory Council of Social Service, NT Cost, has released its uh, 24th Cost of Living report today. Joining us live in the Karma studio, an old friend joins us, Jonathan Pilbrow. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Paul. Another cost of living report. These come out on a, a regular basis, Jonathan. Purpose behind it, and what is NT Cost actually trying to do by releasing this information? Well, that's a really good question. Um, as you said, they come out regularly. We examine data that's put out quarterly um, by the Australian Bureau of Statistics and um, other bodies around expenditure areas that really impact on cost of living for households across the Northern Territory. Our real concern is impact on low-income households. NT Cost is broadly about trying to improve the lives of low-income and disadvantaged Territorians and addressing poverty and disadvantage. So living costs play a significant role in disadvantage and the issue of food is so essential to people's health and well-being. It's, a, it's an expenditure item you can't do without and it also has significant implications for how people feel, their short-term and long-term health and you know, has a real impact on their budget bottom line. There is some good news for the Territory as a whole. Um, So when we look at um, the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, most recent household expenditure survey actually shows that Territorian households on average are spending less in real terms in the 2015-16 figures compared to what they were um, eight or nine years ago, 2009-2010. However, those figures don't include any remote households. So there is a significant gap in the ABS data, and which is why we look at some other um, sources of information to see what's happening in remote areas. But if we look broad brush... Territory as a whole, we're actually doing okay. Um, if we look at the CPI figures for food for Darwin over the last decade, it actually shows that the price of most healthy foods are rising at a slower rate than general inflation, and it's the takeaway food, restaurant meals, etc., that are rising above inflation. So, again, at a broad level, we seem to be doing okay. But when we drill down to low-income households, we see a slightly different story. And when we look at remote areas, it's very, very different. We do know from the Household Expenditure Survey that people on the lowest 20% of incomes are spending nearly a quarter of their income on food. And that's more than double um, the uh, the national and the territory average around uh, proportion of income spent on food. So the territory as a whole, uh, households are spending about 12.3% of their income on food. Um, but if you're in the, the poorest income bracket, you're spending 25.4%. If you're in the highest income bracket, you're only spending about 9%. So we are seeing a massive disparity. Um, and if you're only earning $500 a week and a quarter of that's going on food, or if you're only getting $270 a week because you're on Newstart, um, there's not a lot of money left over for the other essentials of life. Um When we then look at what's happening in remote areas, it's quite stark. Uh, Every year for the last almost 17, 18 years, the Northern Territory Government's put out what they call their market basket survey. That's looking at what are the nutritional needs for a family of six, three adults, three children. What do they need to spend on a weekly basis to ensure all of their nutritional needs are met? What we're seeing is that at the moment, if you're in a remote area, on average, you're paying $854 per week on a basket of goods to feed your family of six. That's staggering. But if you try and buy the same goods at a major supermarket in a, in a regional centre like Darwin or Alice, you're only paying $535 
So we've got a difference of $319, and that's about 60%. If that's not concerning enough, we do know that in 2012, the gap between the remote stores and the major supermarkets in price was only 22%. In 2016, it was 42%. It's now 60%. So the gap's getting wider, um, and that's a trend that we've seen over, over the last decade. So if people don't have access to fresh, healthy, affordable food... Um, then it has significant implications for their health and and their family long term. So we believe this is a really, really critical area and we believe that there's a number of things that government can do um, to address this issue. And and you've raised the issue around what's in it for a a business that's that's making a profit. and I think, you know, that's an important question that we need to address. We believe that uh, the issue of uh, f- freight subsidy needs to be looked at in relation to fruit and vegetables. Um, we know that in the Arnhem Land Progress Association stores, the Alpa stores in the top end, they have voluntarily provided a, a subsidy on fruit and veg for the last 30 years. And more recently, they've extended that um, to canned, uh, dried and uh, frozen vegetables because they recognise that these are the foods that people need to be eating to to maintain a healthy lifestyle. We all know about heart disease, diabetes, kidney disease, etc., which is rife across uh, remote Australia and uh, food plays such a significant role. So that's one measure that we believe could be looked at. Um, The Australian Council of Social Service has recommended a sugar tax, um, recognising that intake of sugar is incredibly high um, across remote areas and um, and, 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 across Australia as 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 a broad population and that if a sugar tax was in the money gained by the Commonwealth Government from a sugar tax could be used and should be used to subsidise freight for remote fresh food and red vegetables. So that's certainly one area that we need to, to look at. Um, the other issue that really needs to be considered is that people also need other additional things to ensure that they can make healthy choices around food. If you don't have a fridge that works, if your electricity isn't constant because uh, you're using power cards uh, or the new system, uh, the, the power tokens, and your electricity is constantly going on and off, it's very, very difficult to keep your f- food fresh. And so you might spend $200 at the shop but it's wasted if two days later the food's rotten. So we need to look at what's happening there and we know that lack of access to things like a fridge, um, a stove that's working, a microwave oven are are real barriers in remote areas. We know that for people trying to access a no-interest loan and there's no-interest loans offered across the country, the NIL scheme, it's really, really difficult if if you live in a remote area. You've got to have photo ID, a three-month bank statement, any loan or lease statement that you've had, you need a tenancy reference or agreement, you need your latest power bill, and you need a quote for the item you want to purchase. So that's a lot of administrative tasks that people need to um, ensure that they've, they've completed before they have an interview with someone either in, in person or over the phone. Um, so it means that people then go to other more expensive options. So they might walk into a you know retail store that rents products. So it, uh, they might be paying two or three times the value of that product over the course of two years and they're renting it, not buying it. So we need to make sure that people are aware of and can access things like no interest loan schemes so they can put an energy-efficient fridge in their house. Um, so we think that that process needs to be made easier and um, you know, that's something that could be worked over you know, in, the, in the medium to long term to, to improve access in, in that way. The electricity issue is a really crucial one. 
there's a lot of hidden disconnections. If people are on the power card system, when they run out of power or run out of money, they run out of power. And if you're trying to store food safely, that makes it virtually impossible. Um, at the moment, if you receive the new start allowance, you don't get an, an electricity concession. But if you're on the pension, you do. We believe there's a case for extending the electricity concession to all low-income households, which would include all those on new start and youth allowance. But at the very least, in the first instance, recognising the remote costs are so much higher than what they are in regional areas that it should be extended in the first instance to remote residents um, across the Northern Territory. So the Northern Territory Government cannot easily or immediately influence food prices, but they can influence other areas that can make a difference to cost of living. Um, and in the same way that we believe the Commonwealth Government needs to increase the rate of new start, again, they may not be able to directly influence prices immediately, but they can influence incomes. And so we're not just talking about a, a cost issue, we are talking an income issue. And we know from recent studies that remote Aboriginal people's incomes are actually decreasing, whereas across the board, Aboriginal people in Australia are, are doing better in terms of income levels, but in remote areas, that's not the case. So there's a range of factors that have to be considered. Bottom line is we need to ensure that all people across Australia and in the Northern Territory have access to fresh and affordable food for their health and well-being for them and their family. It's been said in the past that people choose to live remote. Again, uh, when we look historically at uh, the First Nations peoples, they've been there for thousands of years. It's not a lifestyle choice. It is life. Absolutely. Uh, and they are Australian citizens. Yep. And certainly some of the studies that NDCOS has looked at in, in compiling the support are around people living on traditional lands and the, the food story for them and that the, um, the story about food in the Western, from the Western perspective is very, very different to the food story that traditionally people would have grown up with. And some of the studies point to the significance of traditional food. Now, traditional food is linked with land. You know, it's linked with stories that have been passed on from generation to generation. So if we displace people, they lose their story and they lose their access to, to those really vital factors of their culture and, and identity. So I think we need to be supporting people where they are and um, making sure that we can have food available that's fresh, that's healthy, that's affordable. We're a rich nation full of enormous resources. Most people are doing okay. We need to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to, um, to access the kind of things that they need for a good and healthy life. For a while, I was talking with Jonathan Pilbrow from the Northern Territory Council of Social Services. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Northern Territory Ghana Labor Government has announced a new initiative to help young people at risk stay out of juvenile justice services and become more involved in local vocational programs. Lorena Walker talks to the Minister for Territory Families, Dale Wagfield, who told Karma Radio that the Ghana Government has been working hard to create youth programs across the Northern Territory, which will be focused on education, training and employment skills. We've announced a whole range of programs through our Back on Track program. We all know we've um, been working hard on our youth justice system and made some big reforms, but this is the next stage in that. And what we've done today is announced $8.3 million worth of programs, which are really focusing on working with young people to get them into school, into training, and into making sure that if they have committed a crime of some type, that there's some sort of community work or community program that they can be involved in. 
Uh, is this both for the Alice Springs region and the top end? Yeah, look, it's for the whole of the territory and it's the first time we've been a, done a program that is, um, you know, across the whole territory. So there will be services delivered in Darwin and Palmerston as well as Alice Springs, but also in Tennant Creek, Nullumboy and Catherine. So we're really acknowledging that we really want kids, if they are coming in contact with the justice system, that they're getting supports on country. So in Central Australia, McDonald Council has been one of the, the programs that we'll be funding and they'll be running a range of culture camps as well as Cassie which will be running six months strengthening culture programs with really strong cultural programs for young Aboriginal men. Okay so really just focusing on uh, having programs that are dedicated to these young people but also to make sure that they are still staying connected to country and also maintaining that culture aspect as well? We know if someone has a strong sense of identity and feels really strong and secure in who they are they're more likely to be able to really productively contribute to our community and we know that that's what's been missing out of the program. Congress will be delivering um, other services as well. So the majority of programs in Central Australia and Alice Springs will be um, delivered by Aboriginal controlled organisations which we think is really important. We've got more work around the rest of the Territory to make sure that Aboriginal controlled organisations are involved but we're also looking at new opportunities of getting Aboriginal businesses involved. So one of the programs is a program called First Steps which is a collaboration between the Murren Association and Ruska Developments and they're looking at coming down to Alice Springs to deliver vocational opportunities for young men which is hands-on learning how to build a house, learning how to those construction skills but this is a business that's really stepping up Aboriginal owned business saying we need to be a part of the future for our young men. Yeah that's right and also giving them employment opportunities uh, later on I suppose after they go through these programs yeah, look, we absolutely want to make sure that whilst these programs will be court-ordered, we want the, the courts and police to be able to support young people to have a positive pathway through. We know that detention um, has been, you know, a, a very difficult thing, particularly for young Aboriginal children. We know that it hasn't led to the outcomes we want and we need to step it through so that the court can order someone to go to a vocational training program and that's what Back on Track's all about. Like you mentioned, having having those Aboriginal organisations involved within it. When, when will this be taking place exactly? Um, so all the programs that have been announced today um, will be commencing within eight weeks. Um, we've also got... We were very um, overwhelmed by the, the, the amount of applications we got, which was excellent. So there was uh, nearly 40 applications. We've announced seven organisations getting funding, but we're also working with a couple of remote stations and a couple of other organisations to deliver more remote programs um, on country because we do understand that's where we will get the best results but we also need to make sure that those organisations are well supported to deliver what are really hard um, services. What important message do you have for uh, the people here in Alice Springs about this? I know that many, many people have been very worried about the youth detention centre and I've certainly had many grandmas coming and talking to me, many families saying that they're very worried about their children um, getting into trouble in the first place as well as you know, when they're in the detention centre. We're absolutely working as hard as we can. We've invested in the youth services in Alice Springs. Um, so we've got GAP and um, Tunanjia running seven days a week. We've got the Tunanjia women out patrolling at night. Um, we've got Congress delivering this service. We're working really hard to make sure that young people don't end up in our youth justice system, but when they do, that they're getting the right service to get them back on the right path. And we really need to work together as a community um, to 
to do that. I know it hasn't been as quick as what some of those, you know, when you're worrying about your grandson, it's very, very hard, but we are really listening and working hard to make sure we have a better system for everybody. You did mention the, the grandmothers. There is the uh, the grandmothers group here in Central Australia that are, uh, I guess, focusing more on, um, you know, like you mentioned, just wanting to make sure that the kids, you know, are safe in this environment, mm. but also um, just that support that's needed from government as well. We absolutely hear, uh, you know, and as, you know, we know that um, people would really like to see that detention centre shut down. We've got a bit of work to do to get there and we need to work with courts, police, the whole community as well as Aboriginal communities to make sure that we have a safe community but that we are absolutely investing in our kids and making sure that they have every opportunity to become, you know, valued members of our community and the next generation of strong leaders because we know we need that next generation to be strong, connected to country and connected to culture. Yeah, Dale, is there anything else that you'd like to mention? Just really want to um, really thank everyone who's been a part of this process. We've got a lot of amazing leaders and, and we often have very difficult conversations but I think, I hope from the last lot of announcements we've had with the, the night patrols, with the seven days a week youth services, with this announcement a day of having Aboriginal controlled in organisations in Central Australia really lead the way with a focus on culture that people can see that we're working really hard to work with community to get the outcomes that we all want. Oh,